Specialty Story, session number 208. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to talk to amazing physicians about their specialty. What made them choose their specialty? What do they like about it? What don't they like about it? And what advice do they have for you? This week, I'm talking to Dr. Jen Chen, a plastic surgeon, about her journey to plastic surgery, what she loves about it, what she doesn't like it, and so much more. Now, Dr. Chen has been out of her training for three years now, out practicing in the real world. You can find her on Instagram, Jenny Chen MD and JennyChenMD.com if you want to check out more from Dr. Chen. We start the conversation by talking about how she first became interested in plastic surgery. Yeah, so I uh, I did not know that I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. I, I truly had kind of no concept of, of plastic surgery, and, and so it's it's what you see on the media. It's, it's Botox and fillers and breast augmentations and things like that. Um, and so I went into my third year of medical school thinking that I would become an infectious disease doctor. And so I had uh, done a year of research at the NIH through the Howard Hughes program, um, and I studied HIV. And so I was prepared to do uh, medicine. And so my surgical rotations were my very first rotations back after the year of research. Um because in my logic, it would it would prepare me for for my the rotations that I that I wanted to make sure I did very well in, um, and so I sort of inadvertently ended up doing the plastic surgery rotation at the county hospital and then loved it. Um, and so this is where the plastic surgeons were, who everybody called if they had a problem. Um, so the plastic surgeons were, were the were the fixers and, and the problem solvers, and, and that appealed to me, and um, went from there. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. What do you think uh, it, it was that drew you to this world? What What is it about being a plastic surgeon? About how you can help patients that draws you there? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of a couple things. Um, much more so than I think some of the other surgical specialties, I think there is there is an element of creativity um, in plastic surgery. And so if you ask 10 different plastic surgeons, how are they going to reconstruct a defect after skin cancer um, or a, a defect after a trauma or something like that, you may have 10 different answers. Mm. Um, and none of them are, none of them are incorrect. Um, they may all have different advantages and disadvantages. Um, and, and it's, it's very much suited to the individual patient and the individual problem. Um, and there's an element of, of creativity in that. And so a lot of what we do, you know, there's this balance between reconstructive surgery and also cosmetic surgery. Um, but I, th I think to be a good reconstructive surgeon, you're probably also to some extent a good cosmetic surgeon and, and vice versa. So 
the the child that comes in with a cleft lip and palate, there are functional components of of the surgery. The the cleft palate is to help you speak. It's to help you eat. Um, the surgery on the nose is going to help you breathe. But to a certain extent, the surgery is about fitting in in the world, right? To to be judged not for having a cleft lip and palate, but to be judged on whether you're funny or interesting. Um, and surgery is a way to, to make that be possible so mm. that when someone sees you or meets you for the first time, what you are focused on is not this congenital defect or the trauma that you had or, or something like that, but on, on you as a person, which, which I think is, is unique to plastic surgery. Yeah. Interesting. Would you consider yourself a creative person even b before going down this path as a artist or any sort of other creative outlet? Uh, I probably wouldn't just my my skills are very limited. Um, that being said, if, if you ask many plastic surgeons, they often have um, other skill sets. So I, I played music when I was a child, when I was younger, but I wouldn't consider myself good. Um, but you know, there, there are other people who they're in bands, very good bands, other people who are artists who could, who could very sculptors, the people who, um, could have had other careers separate from medicine and plastic surgery, um, based on those skill sets alone. Wow. Very interesting. Surrounded by very talented people. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around your specialty? Um, I guess it depends from what perspective you're, perspective you're coming from, right? So I think the, the lay person is going to have a different perspective than perhaps the average medical student or the average neurosurgeon or orthopedic surgeon or, or things like that. Um, Let's talk I, about the medical student side. Yeah, so I think, you know, depending on how much experience you have, um, you may not know what exactly is the breadth of plastic surgery. And, and so I, I certainly did not know that before I did my surgical rotations. Um, and so, you know, there are people who do gender confirmation. There are people who do pediatric plastic surgery. There are people to do, that do hand surgery. There are people who do uh, nerve surgery and, and the scope of medicine, I think today, whether that's plastic surgery or any other field is that people are becoming more and more specialized. Mm -hmm. And I think you're, you're certainly seeing some of that, right? People who only focus on um, nerve reconstruction, people who only focus on gender confirmation surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Interesting. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good? Uh, let's let's focus a little bit more on the the subspecialty side of things: uh, craniofacial, pediatric, plastic surgeon. Um, you know, I I think it's a very different practice in a couple ways. Um, for one, most of the time, your patients are not able to articulate anything to you, right? They're, they're, they're young. And so your patients are not, they, they're the children, but they're also the parents. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to communicate 
with the parents what you want or need or what your goals are for their child is a little bit different, I think, than than talking to someone who's a fully formed adult and is making a decision for themselves. Um, I, I think that's probably the the biggest difference. Otherwise, you know, there there are pr- the principles of surgery are, are are very similar. Yeah, interesting. So, talk about from a, a cranial facial plastic uh, pediatric plastic surgeon um, angle. What what are patients coming to you for? Sure. So it's it's the breadth of pediatric plastic surgery and cranial facial surgery. And so so what that means is most commonly in, in absolute numbers, that's probably lumps and bumps. So things like dermoid cysts that are on the face, moles that are on the, on the face, uh, large congenital nevi, uh, patients who've had burns or hand anomalies, uh, patients with cleft lip and palate, so cleft rhinoplasty and, and those associated things. Um, I do uh, ear molding, which is not which was really not even in existence when I trained and has become more and more popular, which is a non-surgical way of molding the cartilage. And so that uh, started out from things that we used to do for the, the clefts called nasoalveolar molding, where you can change the shape of the lip and the nose prior to surgery. Hmm. And now we, we apply that same concept to ears. So you can mold a baby's ear shape uh, in the first kind of couple weeks of life. And so I'm, I'm seeing a spectrum of severity. So I, I'm seeing someone who's coming in for ear molding, which is obviously a, a, a fairly non, uh, uh, is, is not life threatening in any way. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll also see a child who's in the NICU and they are consulting me because the baby has Pierre-Robin sequence. They have a very small jaw. They have difficulty breathing. They're not able to have a stable airway. And so with that family, my discussion is, you know, what are what are your options, if any, and what surgical options do you have to improve your child's airway? And the most common surgery is, is something called mandibular distraction. Um, and so obviously that's a much more serious conversation potentially than than the conversation than I that I have for for a child who I'm removing a mole on. Mm. Um, but that is the uh, I, that is a part of my practice that I enjoy, sort of the the breadth of cases that I, I take care of. From a psychological standpoint, for you, how easy is it to task switch almost? is is not the right word, but it seems like the most appropriate thing, like between different patients where one may be more of a cosmetic thing and another one is more life-threatening. I don't, I don't know if I am... I don't know if I, I switch all that much. I, I think it helps to have a little bit of perspective regardless of who you're taking care of. Um, probably by nature as a, a surgeon or a physician, I, I worry about everything. So I, I may worry differently about the child who I'm taking a mole off, um, but I'm still kind of going through the process of, of how how can I make sure that this patient does as well as I can possibly make them do? Yeah. Interesting. What's a typical week look like for you? Um, I typically have clinic uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, on Wednesday, it's a half day. 
and so that's a mix of new patients, of follow-ups, of procedures, of things like mole removal, skin cancer reconstruction, that sort of thing. Um, and then I typically operate on Tuesdays, Wednesday mornings, and Fridays. Okay. And for the patients that are coming to see you, um, for, for some surgical subspecialties, not every patient needs to go to the operating room, but it potentially for you, every patient you're seeing in clinic for an eval, they, they need surgery or how many do you say, you know what, the surgery isn't your, what, what's best for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think a lot of times, you know, patients come in just for, for consultation and, and to try and get a sense of, you know, is this something we have to do? Is this something we don't have to do? What are, what are our options? Um, and for some people that is a choice and for other people it's, it's not. And, and what I mean by that is I'll see a patient who comes in, um, with melanoma. And so obviously the, the thing that is most commonly recommended would be some form of surgery and reconstruction. That's the standard of care. Um, and so for, for that patient, it's, it's less about a discussion of should you have surgery or should you not have surgery? The discussion is what are we going to do? How do we optimize your healing? How do we make this the best outcome possible? Um, whereas say, for example, you know, someone comes in and they have trouble breathing, right? Uh, and, they're, and they're coming in so that I can do a septoplasty or a rhinoplasty. Um, this is a, a non-urgent elective procedure. And so, you know, they, they have a choice. And with that choice, there are advantages and disadvantages. Very interesting. So uh, from your particular, not, not specialty, but, but you, you in particular, you see, I think you said about 30% pediatric patients, and then the rest are, are maybe adults and, and other, um, uh, other cases. For someone who may want to do craniofacial and, and pediatric plastic surgery full-time, is there enough caseload for that if someone were want, would want to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on the... There's a lot of geographic variation, um, where you live, how the practice, how your practices are set up and things like that. Um, and so, you know, depending on the complexity of the cases that you are wanting to do, there may only be a handful of centers in the country that you can, you're able to practice and do and, and practice pediatric plastic surgery a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Just depends on where you're at. What does call look like for you? So I, uh, I take call at a couple different hospitals. It is probably, oh, maybe one in seven type of thing. So mm. it's, 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 it's reasonable. Um, I am always, it, by nature of being in private practice, um, I am always available in the sense that if my patients have an issue, they can contact me, mm. uh, which is which is different from shift work for different other specialties or, or perhaps if, if you're in another uh, practice setup. Um, that being said, I think you, you learn with time how to balance that. 
Yeah, makes sense. Um, the um, the life of a surgeon, especially for uh, a lot of women that I talk to, they get they get uh, discouraged from a surgical subspecialty, especially one that takes seven years of training, typically like plastic surgery, and we'll get into the, the training path in a second. What would you say to a student out there, uh, male, female, whatever, who who is concerned about the length of training and the um, the stress of surgery on family life and, and other things? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I would say I love my job. I am very fortunate to be able to do something that I enjoy every day. Um, that being said, it, I also love my family and it's, it's very important for me to, to have that balance. Uh, surgical training is difficult. It's, it's challenging. Um, I, I, have friends who had children in surgical training, and it is not easy. Um, that being said, I think it's it's doable, and I think as time changes and people are being more mindful of of balance, it is certainly easier now than it was twenty years ago. I, I wouldn't say it's it's not relaxing. You're not going to you you may not enjoy it. Um, but, but I think it's certainly doable. Um, and then after, after you finish residency, you have much more control over your life. And so what I would say for people thinking about it is your life does not stop in training. Right? Mm. It's not just surgical training 24 seven. The, the reason people were called residents is because you used to reside in the hospital. That's no longer a thing. People don't live in the hospital anymore. You might feel like it some days, but you can, you can have a life, you can get married, you can have kids, you can have a family, you can do all those things, uh, I think, in training. Mm. Yeah. So, and so I, would, I wouldn't let that deter them um, from, from doing one thing or another. Um, I had I had lunch with a, a senior plastic surgeon, a, a woman who's probably in her 60s now a couple weeks ago. And I was asking her if she ever felt like her family missed out because she was a surgeon. Uh, and she said that she made it a point that she took every Monday off. And so from the time they were little to now where they're in high school, she took every Monday off. And when they got older and they went in school, she still had that Monday off and she'd do it to do paperwork or, or go to a doctor's appointment or things like that. And she said her, her kids came to rely on that, to depend on that. So her 16 year old son now will say, mom, can we go to Six Flags on Monday? It's summer vacation. I know you don't work on Monday. Can we do Monday? And so it became something that was very consistent um, for her family. And so, and I think everybody's situation is different, but you have to, you, you have the ability to, to make that decision. Yeah, I, I think intentionality would be a good word to 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 say there. As once you're a physician, then then you have to be intentional about how you want to shape your your life. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so, so to, to make this call, my, my clinic on Mondays normally goes to 6 30 PM. Mm-hmm. I ended it at two. Uh, I ended it at two. I didn't finish until two 45. And so I, I built in that buffer. And so I, I think you can do the things you want to do. You just have to be mindful about it. Wow. Well, th- thank you for, uh, for cutting clinic short, um, to, to come hang out with us. So for for the training path, right? Four years of medical school, and then what does it look like after that? So four years of medical school, and then it's plastic surgery residency. And so the most common plastic surgery residency is an integrated plastic surgery residency, which is six years. Um, that is probably the most common now, to my understanding. There are still other paths to plastic surgery. So there's an independent track. And so that typically is for uh, trainees who are coming from some other specialty, whether that's general surgery or ENT or or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And for that fellowship program, my understanding is that it's a three-year training program. And then after, after residency, which is six years, or fellowship, which is three plus whatever previous training you had, um, some people can will decide to do a fellowship. Okay. And then for craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgery, what does that fellowship look like? That's one year. Okay. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias out there? I think it's very challenging um, because plastic surgery is very competitive. Um, that being said, I would say the first thing is to just keep in mind that being a good doctor doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your step score or the number of publications you have or, or anything like that. Right? It's, it's, it's much less material than that. Um, that being said, I think the things that make you stand out as an applicant to someone who does not know you um, are those more tangible items. So your board score, your publications, um, if you have the opportunity to do a rotation or to spend some time with with, um, plastic surgeons who are in an academic setting, I think that uh, behooves you. Uh, so it is a very small world. There's a, there's a very, it's a very small specialty, uh, relative to some of the other specialties. And so you, you will find people who know people. Um, and so making an impression and being able to get a very good letter of recommendation is, is probably more important for someone who is less obviously competitive. For the, uh, let's focus again on the, the craniofacial pediatric side of things. For the future pediatrician listening to this, what do you want them to know about what you're able to do as a, a pediatric plastic surgeon so that they can help their patients and help you do your job? Yeah, I think I, think I am, you know, uh, above all, I would say if you, if you have questions or anything like that, then, then reach out, right? Because you have to learn, you have to know so much as a pediatrician, the, the chances that you're going to encounter an issue that is very well suited for a pediatric plastic surgeon um, may be less common. Um, and so what I would say is if, if you have any questions, then, then reach out, whether it's to me or, or someone in uh, near where you practice. 
Um, we, we take care of the breadth of kids, right? So lumps and bumps, uh, kids who have no other issues but, but moles or issues where, um, you know, lesions or burns. We take care of teenagers who come in with back pain who need breast reductions. We take care of kids who have broken their noses and have trouble breathing. Um, and for, for some kids that may be, you, know, you don't need any sort of surgical intervention uh, or, you, or you merely need observation. And for some kids, it, it, it may be this discussion of what is what makes the most sense in terms of surgical timing or optimal timing and things like that. Um, probably the most common thing that I see from pediatricians um, abs in, in terms of absolute number wise would be wounds and lacerations and, and things like that. And, and for that, the general concepts of, of wound care apply, right? So washing things with soap and water, uh, keeping everything clean, wounds that are moist are going to heal better than wounds that are dry. So you want to apply a little bit of antibiotic ointment. Um, those are probably the most common things that I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, and then for for other things, I guess I would say, you know, I, I remember I had colleagues who were pediatricians who said, oh, you know, I, I noticed XYZ about this child. This was a, a patient who had a cleft lip and palate um, previously repaired, and they noticed issues with speech, but they didn't know that something could be done, um, that, that the child had other options. And so I would mm -hmm. say kind of in those settings, you know, recognizing those sorts of things and then making sure that um, those kids, you know, see their plastic surgeon or see the, the multidisciplinary clinic and, and things like that, just to make sure that everyone's on board and, and they're getting all the things that they need. Yeah. For, um, for you, what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into all of this? Um, so many things. <laughs> or maybe maybe a different way of saying it is it was what would you go back in time to tell your younger self? I I think at the end of the day I you know like I said I'm I'm very fortunate to to do my job um to take care of the people that I take care of to do the work I do. Um I think one thing that you you never quite know until you you leave training until the patients are truly your own is that uh you feel a great deal of ownership for your patients and in some ways it's it's a good thing because I think it makes you a better doctor and it makes you a better surgeon you you will do everything in your power to to make sure that they do as well as possible I think that being said, whether it is surgery or, or, or medicine or just, or just life, there are things you cannot control. And so there will be things that happen to your patients that you do not want to happen, right? And, and some of that is under your control, some of it's not under your control. And so I think it is important to find a way to balance that, to do as much as you can for your patients but do it in a productive fashion so that you yourself do not get burned out, that you're capable of continuing to do your job. It, it, it makes no sense to be 
so personally impacted that you can no longer do your work in a productive way. Yeah, makes sense. What do you like the most about being a, a craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgeon? Um, there is an immediate gratification to surgery that I think exists nowhere else, which I did not realize I would find satisfying, but I do. So it it's, it's, makes me sound very simple, perhaps, but you, you come in, the child has a cleft lip, you operate on them, and you know, they, they still have a cleft lip, but they, you, you look immediately better. Right. Like you, you, there's like an immediate impact to the things that we do, um, which is really neat. And, and one thing that I think is unique about pediatric plastic surgery or any sort of pediatric specialty is that you see kids grow and you see them change over time. So I, I saw a little girl today who was born with Pierre Robin sequins. So I met her on the first day of her life. Uh, and she had difficulty breathing, so and she had a cleft palate, so she was not uh, responsive to any of the non-surgical interventions. So we ended up doing mandibular distraction, where you make their jaw bigger. Uh, it improved her airway, and so you you see immediately this child who cannot lay on their back, who cannot breathe, uh, who needs supplemental oxygen, who cannot use a bottle, uh, become a child after you distracted their mandible. Uh, um, they're, a, they're a child who doesn't need oxygen, that can feed from a bottle, that can lay flat on their back. Um, and, and I see her today and she's two years old and, and she's healed very well. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that any of that has happened. You wouldn't know that her parents probably didn't sleep for the first month of her life. And, and so it's very gratifying to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that immediate gratification would would help a lot of people, especially for the internal medicine docs out there. Bless them. Uh, but to to take care of diabetes and hypertension, there's no immediate gratification there, unfortunately. No, there there's not, and and you know, so much of things like that are beyond our control. Yeah. Right? So the patient who has diabetes who can't get their sugar under control, it's not about how good of a doctor you are. It's not about the medicine you're prescribing. It's about the fact that they have a terrible job and they can't eat regular meals and they run out of food stamps at the end of the month. Like it, it has nothing to do yep. with what you can do and everything to do with, with social or economic situations. Yeah. For uh, the student who, again, is very interested in potentially going into plastic surgery, whether it's for pedi pediatrics or, or else, um, but they doubt their abilities. How much of that do you think is, is just innate in, in you and all the other plastic surgeons out there were born with, with gifted hands versus, versus just something you learn through your training? It's, it's just something you learn. I mean, it's not, uh, there are certainly gifted surgeons, mm -hmm. Um, there, there are people who were division one athletes who have amazing hand-eye coordination, who you watch in the OR and you say, this is magic. It's like music. Just watching you move is beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that is very uncommon. Uh, 
um, even the, the people who are, are world famous physicians or surgeons, I, I think that's, that's less likely uh, to be true. I, I think the, the important things, the things that make you a good surgeon are, yes, like, can you cut and can you sew? And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a little bit of a range of that. Um, but I think more often than not, it is how thoughtful are you? Are you make, are you choosing the right surgery for the right patient? Are you being mindful of everything that's unique to that patient? How much skin laxity they have, how healthy they are. There are things that I can do on a two-year-old that will heal beautifully that I cannot do on a 60-year-old. And so it, it has nothing to do with, with how I cut or how I sew. It has everything to do with, with some of that decision-making. Um, and that is that has nothing to do with how coordinated you are. Um, I also think that with, with all surgery and probably with all medicine, you get better by being critical of, of your results and your decision-making. And so I think that the people who are very critical of their own results and make it a point to try and improve upon that would they'll probably end up being a better surgeon than someone who is fortunate enough to have a little bit better hand-eye coordination yeah makes sense what do you like the most about your specialty um i like the day-to-day work. Like I, I like doing things with my hands and I didn't necessarily know this going into surgery. Like I was not someone who builds things or sculpts or, or anything like that. It was, it was, um, and, and I consider myself, you know, I, I wanted to do infectious disease and basic science research because I, I, I thought I enjoyed that kind of intellectual challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be, and I, and I do, but, and I have that in plastic surgery, but I also really just enjoy the technical day-to-day doing of operating. Hmm. Yeah. Do, do you have any, any twinges of, of regret or sadness? We're in the middle of a pandemic and all the ID docs are out there doing their thing. No, I don't think <laughs> That's good. That's good. That means you're in the right place. No, although I I do appreciate everything that they have sacrificed and everything they've worked through this whole this whole pandemic, right? The the plastic surgeons have been very fortunate. You know, we we are not the ones that have carried the the burden of this past year. Yeah. What do you like the least about your specialty? All the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> the paperwork and the insurance appeals. And so I will have a conversation with someone where I say, yes, the child does have a cleft palate. They are not able to speak and they are not able to eat and surgery will address this. And yes, I do agree that they have a palate like a cleft. And yes, I do agree that they need surgery. Will you please approve this surgery? And then they go through some process where they decide whether or not that is something that they can do or not do. 
and then they approve the surgery. Hmm. But it's 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 a lot of paperwork that that went into that process, which I, I think is probably fairly unnecessary. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field that may disrupt disrupt it that people coming up through training need to know about or should know about? Um, I think that the you know the the original focus of of sort of you know pediatric plastic surgery and craniofacial surgery was or is congenital anomalies. And I think to a certain extent, the volume of those sorts of things has changed. Um, and some of that is uh, just the, the nature of, of where we are. So, you know, in the advent of, of craniofacial surgery, you had all the patients who were being born with with craniofacial anomalies, and then you had all the other people that had been born over the last 30 years who had never gotten surgery. And so there was this backlog of, of patients to treat. And and now that is gone. And then to a certain extent, I think with the with the advent of things like um, the improved imaging and, and things like that. Um, with ultrasound, et cetera, et cetera, I think some of the conge- genetic testing, I think some of the congenital anomalies that patients that we used to treat are becoming less and less common. Um, so things like cleft lip, things like Treacher Collins, things like uh, Aperts and Cruzon syndrome, those, those things are becoming less common the more people have access to some of that information. And I think that that is worldwide. That's not just here in the U.S. If you if you speak to craniofacial surgeons in in France, they'll tell you the same thing: that the bulk of their their patients with craniofacial anomalies are not um, children who are born in France who have access to those sorts of imaging. It is patients who are born in other countries who do not have that similar access. Mm-hmm. And so I think the specialty is always evolving. And so you see, um, you see people doing facial feminization now. So for, for gender, gender confirmation, gender affirmation. And so you, it's, it's this, it's a similar skill set. It's a, it's, it's technically very similar procedures, right. Or, or, or general concepts. Um, but instead of doing a, in, instead of changing the frontal bones in a child with cranial synostosis, you are changing the contour of the forehead for someone who is transitioning um, uh, gender. Mm. And so I, I think it is a, the same skill set. Like I, I'm, I'm very happy I did the craniofacial fellowship. I think it, it made me a better surgeon. Um, but one of the things that is unique to, to something like this is, is you have to kind of go in to it, understanding, um, certain limitations. Yeah. That makes sense. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a a craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgeon among others? Yeah, I think so. I have no other skill sets, so (laughs) I'm in that sense, but, but I, I think that if I could, if I could do it all over again, there, there are different things I would do. 
but the overall path that I would take is the same. And, and for that, I realize how fortunate I am. What's, what's the biggest thing that you would do differently? I think that in retrospect, I just, I, I now know how much I missed in training, right? And, and some of that is just, you don't know how much you don't know. It's, yeah. it's called, it's like the Kruger-Dunning effect. Right? Yeah. It, it's um, this ability to overestimate your, your fund of knowledge. Um, and so, you know, for, for the people who are applying to medical school, for the people who are in medical school, in residency, take every opportunity you can to learn about everything, regardless of what it is you want to do. I, I promise you, if you want to become a psychiatrist, there will be things in plastic surgery that will be helpful to you. <laughs> yeah, I... I... I, same thing. Yeah. I, I struggled that myself in medical school going in wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. That was the only reason I went to medical school was to be an orthopedic surgeon. And okay. I, I was sitting in my histology class going, why the heck do I need to learn this? This has nothing to do with the bones. And it's, it's my biggest regret because you, you don't build a foundation of just learning, right. And, and soaking it all in and, and being able to make connections later on that you never would have thought were there. Yeah, and, and, and part of it is, you know, you have such a unique opportunity. Only in medical school are you going to be able to walk into a neurosurgeon's OR, into a cardiologist's office, into the psychiatrist's office, and be able to ask them questions and learn everything you possibly can. I think if I, if I did that now, I would probably get some very blank stares. It would be very odd. Um, and so take advantage of this unique opportunity that you have as a medical student. Yeah, love it. Uh, I think I'm going to end there. I typically end with last words of wisdom, but I think that's it, right? Just go go and, and soak it all in as much as you can because you're not going to be a medical student forever and have these opportunities to, to pick everyone's brain as, as closely as you can when you're through your training. Absolutely. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Jenny Chen. You can find her again at JennyChenMD.com. That's J-E-N-N-Y-C-H-E-N-M-D.com. I hope this was a helpful episode for you. There are a lot of stereotypes about plastic surgery out there. And one of the guests I've had before, Dr. Ricky Brown, he's the real TikTok Doc on TikTok is a plastic surgeon and really talks about uh, kind of a lot of those myths out there that plastic surgery is all cosmetics, but there's so much more to plastic surgery out there. If you want some more information about plastic surgery, you go to plasticsurgery.org, which is the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm -hmm.